All right, hi. Uh, my name is Temi Tayo Ogunle. I'm one of the assistant professors at the Department of Dermatology at, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, thank you for inviting me, and I'll be talking about alopecia and skin of color. We'll be talking about treatment pearls and tips. Um, I don't have any uh, relevant disclosures or conflicts of interest. Um, and the learning objectives for today are to discuss clinical findings and treatment recommendations for um, CCCA, also known as central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia and traction alopecia. Um, we'll be discussing kind of historical pers um, perspectives and some hindrances to compliance. Um, we'll be talking about different hairstyling methods and kind of modifications that we can make um, for patients. And also just talking about developing a more individualized and moderate approach to treatment. Um, and so why are we talking about scarring alopecia? Um, first of all, because scarring hair loss is, frust uh, is frustrating, right? So um, it's frustrating for the patient um, because no one wants to be heard that, uh, you know, or be told rather that their hair may not grow back. Um, and it's also frustrating um, as a provider because, um, you know, there's, uh, we sometimes feel like there's not a lot that we can do. Um, hair loss is also a super common complaint in skin of color um, populations. Um, and so we'll be talking about some of the implicit biases that we may have um, against appropriate or comprehensive uh, approaches to treatment. So, you know, you start with the beginning, right? So with hair loss, there, you know, you're going to take a history, you're going to take your normal history, but there are some specifics that you uh, may consider in order to kind of cater um, what kind of treatment you can give your patients. So, you know, you want to ask how long the hair loss has been going on. Is it sudden or gradual? Um, is it localized or diffuse? And where on the scalp is it occurring? Um, do they have shedding from their roots or is their hair breaking? Is there a family history of hair loss? Are there any recent life stressors such as medication changes, loss of loved ones, hospital stays, surgeries, illnesses. Um, you also want to ask about scalp symptoms. Um, particularly with scalp symptoms, you want to ask about itching or tenderness or pain, um, whether they have scaling, uh, bumps. Um, and I always ask specifically about itching or tenderness for my um, CCCA patients um, because it's something that patients may have been living with for years and don't realize that it's abnormal and may not actually tell you unless you um, kind of solicit, for, solicit it from them. So always ask about that. And then I also ask about hairstyling methods. And so you want to ask whether they use heat on their hair and what kind of heat are they using kind of, you know, curling irons? Are they using blow dryers, um, uh, flat irons? Um, do they dye their hair? You also want to ask about relaxers. And I always, um, you know, kind of recommend that when people ask about relaxers, you want to ask, do you relax your hair versus like how often do you, um, do you relax? And that's an important kind of distinction because relaxers are not as common, at least currently, um, as far as like a styling kind of method. And so it's really, you know, just because you see someone um, who has straight hair doesn't mean that their hair, that they, you know, they aren't, first of all, that their hair isn't naturally straight, but also um, that they aren't using heat to um, keep their hair straight um, normally. So I always recommend that you ask, um, you know, kind of whether they relax their hair. Um, you want to ask about how often they're wearing braids and if they wear braids. Um, again, if they wear weaves, tight ponytails, and also frequency of washing. Frequency of washing is also an important um, kind of a question to ask about in your skin of color patients um, because you want to know how often they're washing their hair so that you, you can cater um, your treatment to them as well. So uh, for instance, if you have a patient who's washing her hair, you know, once every two to three weeks, um, you may decide to recommend an anti, you know, antifungal shampoo such as ketoconazole use that they may use once every two weeks. So it's not like you're going to give them the blanket kind of recommendation where you're saying, oh, just use this shampoo two to three times per week when they're not washing their hair nearly that frequently and would never wash their hair that frequently. So I always ask about that as well. 
Um, so we'll talk about a sample case. Um, so let's say you had this 53-year-old fe um, female who came into your um, clinic. Um, she's complaining of hair loss for a couple of years on the central scalp that's been progressive. She has occasional itching and tenderness, um, not really noticing like long strands or unusual loss of hair, um, and no re recent changes in her medication or life stressors. Um, she does relax her hair and has a history of relaxing her hair every 40 years, or excuse me, for 40 years, and let's say she does it every 12 weeks. Um, she wears braids and weaves occasionally, but it's not a regular styling method for her, and she never wear, really wears um, tight ponytails, and she only uses rinses to color her hair. And so when you do her physical exam, you look at her scalp, and you see on the vertex scalp is this um, basically patch of hair loss. She has increased interfollicular distance. She has some loss of follicular ostia. There may not be any, there's no scale, um, no uh, erythema that you can um, kind of uh, view. Um, and she has little kind of tiny areas of hyperpigmentation and hypopigmentation. Um, and you do the hair pull test, and her hair pull test is negative. So I did... Um, highlight the hair pull test because I feel like that's a question a lot of people have when they think about or how to do or question about how to do it I should say um, when you're thinking about um, doing a hair exam or scalp exam. So the hair pull test essentially is when you um, select 50 to 60 hairs. So how many hairs are 50 to 60 hairs? I mean I'm not sitting there counting. I just said that you kind of pick uh, an area like a an inch kind of diameter um, section of hair. Um, and you wanna hold the hair kind of close to the scalp and then gradually pull your hair up the, um, the hair shaft. Um, with your, usually I say first, your first and second or first and third fingers. I actually tend to use both of my fingers, all, all three of my fingers to do that. Um, you really wanna firmly pull on that section with slow traction. Um, sliding the hair down the hair shaft. Um, and so when you do that, you can actually, if you pull with enough traction, you'll be able to kind of get any of the loose telogen hairs to come out. Now, obviously, you're not going to do this um, kind of roughly enough to kind of cause your patient pain, but you do actually have to do it with more force than you think. Um, it's hard to demonstrate, but um, I'll say maybe about this much hair. And as I said, you want to pull and pull kind of down. Um, as far as positivity for the hair pull test, um, if you have uh, two or more hairs per pull, it's considered um, positive. Um, I usually do the hair pull test on different areas on the scalp to see if different areas are more active than others. I always do the hair pull test also around the periphery of any area of loss. Um, the two things that can make the hair pull test unreliable um, are if a patient has recently washed their hair, uh, because then they probably have brushed or washed out all of their telogen hairs, so that will make it falsely negative, or in, patient, in patients who wash their hair infrequently, um, such a, you know, a, and that will make the, the hair pull test falsely um, positive. So you always want to ask about when they just, when they recently washed your hair. Um, uh, for our uh, CCCA specifically, um, which is what the diagnosis that this patient has, um, you, you can do dermoscopy or trichoscopy, uh, trichoscopy um, where you're looking at the scalp with your derma, um, dermatoscope. Um, and what you may see is kind of this uh, peripylar um, white-gray halo around the um, hair follicle. Um, and that is kind of that actually scarring process that you can see uh, pathologically as well. Um, so if you see this peripylar white-gray halo, um, halo so to be fairly sensitive for um, patients with CCCA. Um, clinically, as we said, you know, you kind of see this patch or, um, of hair loss um, on the vertex scalp um, where you can see broken hairs in the area. Um, there are various stages. You know, you may have patients that come in very early uh, who may be a little bit more difficult to diagnose, and then you'll have patients who have more significant disease. 
So, you know, with CCCA, as we um, have discussed, it is this patch of um, scarring hair loss that usually happens on the vertex scalp, and it is progressive, um, as the name suggests. So it is this chronic and progressive central scalp hair loss that expands centripetally, um, somewhat symmetrically, but not always. And, you know, in more severe or more advanced cases, you'll see that smooth, shiny scalp. Um, and usually you'll see that in um, follicular dropout. Um, as I mentioned earlier, patients may have itching or tenderness, but there are plenty of patients who have no symptoms at all. Um, and it's typically not overtly inflammatory like other, some other forms of um, scarring hair loss. So you might see some inflammatory papules. Um, you might you know, see some pustules, but very rarely in CCCA. Um, oftentimes, you'll see that dispigmentation um, or that kind of um, areas of or excuse me, hypopigmentation and hyperpigmentation, um, which um, can sometimes point to chronicity. Hair breakage can be an occult sign. So you may have some patients that'll come in saying, hey, I've just been having this area, you know, I had uh, an area on the top of my scalp that won't grow um, and or that breaks off. Um, and so that may be an er a very early sign of CCCA. So for patients who come in with hair kind of breakage in kind of very focal areas on their vertex scalp, often will biopsy in those areas. And more times than not, they will have signs of CCCA on biopsy, even if they don't have kind of signs clinically on the scalp. And in those patients, those are the patients that you really want to, I mean, you know, treat and catch because you've caught them before they have had kind of frank hair loss. Um, CCCA is most commonly described in women of African descent, but um, it has been described in men and occasionally in other races. And so um, you can kind of see in these pictures, again, um, some of that follicular dropout. This patient has a little bit of hair breakage, but obviously has that background of, um, you know, kind of uh, frank hair loss that you can, that is clear that, uh, what the diagnosis is. Um, this patient also has some inflammatory papules that I said you can sometimes see on exam. Um, this is one of my patients who came in with hair breakage. She complained of an area of hair loss that you can see kind of in um, the lower kind of left-hand corner, um, but she also has this area that is much shorter than the rest of her hair. And so when I biopsied in this area, she had um, binding the CCCA. And as I mentioned, these are the kind of patients that ideally you want to catch early so that you can actually uh, potentially prevent or significantly slow um, their progression of their hair loss. When you are biopsying um, patients, whether you have a patient who has like the hair breakage um, or you have a patient who has frank hair loss, you want to make sure that you um, pick an appropriate area to biopsy. So, uh, you know, I always tell, uh, you know, tell um, providers that you don't want to um, biopsy obviously in the center where the hair loss is uh, very prominent because what you're going to see is just scar there. Um, and so it's much um, better to biopsy on the periphery on the hair, of the hair loss. First of all, so if there's any inflammation, that's where you're going to see the inflammation because that's where the hair loss is moving as it moves um, centripetally. Um, and also you, also, you want to see the hair follicles. So you want to have some hair follicles that are present um, that you can kind of see what kind of inflammation is present, what kind of um, scarring is present. Um, so biopsy here, not here. Um, so we're going to move on to another case, um, and I will mention that we'll be talking about treatments and kind of um, how to approach this um, uh, a little bit um, a little bit later in the lecture. So for this next sample case, you have this 26-year-old female who comes in with complaints of hair loss for a couple of years on her frontal scalp that's been gradually worsening. She doesn't have any symptoms at all, no itching, no tenderness. She doesn't have any um, shedding or loss of strands, um, no recent changes in medication or life stressors. Um, she hasn't really relaxed her hair in a couple of years, um, but she does wear braids and weaves a few times per year. And she does have a positive family history with other female members in her family with similar types of hair loss. And so on the 
physical exam, you see kind of short broken hairs and increased interfollicular distance. Um, but you do see this maintained kind of frontal hairline. Um, there is minimal scale, no erythema, and she has a negative hair pull test. And so this is traction alopecia, as you probably could tell from the description. Um, and in traction alopecia, what you oftentimes will see, as you can see on the middle of the screen, you can kind of see this kind of um, preserved um, frontal hairline um, and then an area of loss. And then you see kind of the normal kind of growth of hair. Um, so that's very classic for traction alopecia. Um, it is an acquired, I say scarring and non-scarring because it usually starts out as a non-scarring hair loss, but with chronicity it can be, that can be, become scarring. Um, and it usually results from some kind of rep repetitive tension on the scalp. And so that can be a number of different things, whether it's tight buns, you, you will sometimes see this in ballerinas, um, cornrows, dreadlocks, weaves, braids, anything that is repetitive and providing that tension on the frontal hairline. Um, it can occur in any age or ethnic group, but the prevalence increases with age, um, again, because usually there's some type of chronicity. So it's usually repeated episodes of, um, kind of uh, tension on the scalp that can cause this hair loss. It is more common in um, black populations, but um, mostly because of styling, but you can see it in any population. Um, and it may occasionally have symptoms such as itching or scaling, but it's often asymptomatic. And then you can have that fringe shine, which I kind of pointed out in the um, last slide, where you see kind of the retention of the marginal hairline or the frontal hairline. Um, and we'll go back to that. You can just kind of see that retention of that hairline there. Um, whenever you're thinking about hair loss in your skin of color patients, you want to make sure not to forget alternate or concomitant diagnoses. So just because a patient has CCCA or traction alopecia doesn't mean they can't have CCCA and traction alopecia and or in this case, androgenetic alopecia. Um, so this is a patient on the left who has a, um, has a diagnosis of CCCA who doesn't look um, that um, you know, different from the patient on the right who has um, androgenetic alopecia. And I would say kind of anecdotally that um, a number of my patients will, especially when you biopsy, you'll find evidence of both CCCA and um, androgenetic alopecia. One of the benefits of doing the biopsy and kind of finding that out is that, um, you know, you, while in CCCA, you know, the general kind of uh, teaching is that it's a scarring alopecia and so that hair loss or, excuse me, hair regrowth is not the expectation. Um, with androgenetic alopecia, there are some treatments that you can start that may potentially have some hair, cause some hair growth for patients. So you always want to um, make sure to remember those concussions dominant diagnoses. And you also want to make sure that you remember kind of alternate diagnoses as well. Um, um, in particular, you know, when it comes to this uh, on the left, you can see this patient who has traction alopecia, as you can see this kind of fringe shine that's right there, um, whereas the patient on the right actually has frontal fibrosing alopecia. Um, and, you know, one of the big distinguishers between frontal FFA and um, traction alopecia um, will be that lack of um, that lack of that fringe shine. Um, and also, I mean, this, uh, the lonely hairs that you will see, which I have in this next slide. So you, the perifollicular erythema, you may not always see that easily in your darker skin patients. So that is something to keep in mind, but you sometimes can see it. Um, but there are always these, or typically I should say, these lonely hairs that you can see in your patients with FFA, where I just say that those are those hairs that just don't want to let go. So you'll have an area where they, there are, are no other hairs, but two or three hairs that like will refuse to kind of fall out. Um, so that's one distinguisher that you can help you between the diagnosis of FFA and traction alopecia.
And we already talked about the fact that erythema may be absent, but if you look, sometimes it is present. So in the um, picture on the left, you can see that there's a little bit of erythema around some of these lonely hairs that are remaining, as opposed to on the right where you don't see any. Um, in addition, obviously, when you have a patient with hair loss, you want to ask about hair loss in other areas of the body. So like eyebrows, eyelashes, body hair. Um, so you do want to check the face, body hair, and eyebrows in your patients um, who come in with hair loss um, just to make sure that there are no other findings of hair loss elsewhere on the body that might suggest other diagnoses outside of scarring hair losses such as CCCA or traction alopecia. Particularly in FFA, many patients develop these facial papules where they develop kind of small um, flesh-colored um, kind of bumps. Um, typically kind of around the kind of lateral kind of forehead and cheeks. Um, and that is actually caused by the lichenoid inflammation that occurs of, on the vellus hairs on the face. You also want to ask about other rashes on the body. Um, and so this is a patient um, who also who had um, um, who had FFA, but also had lichen planus pigmentosus. And interestingly, we do find that frontal fibrosing alopecia and lichen planus pigmentosus occurs um, concomitantly in about maybe up to half of patients and much more commonly in darker skin patients. So I always ask about rashes as well if I have any question about the diagnosis. So moving on to like what you recommend for treatment. And so, you know, when you think about the management of CCCA, um, there have been a number of, like, basically, I call it kind of like the a ladder of kind of treatment that um, some people recommend. I think traditionally, because of the, the um, thought process that CCCA was due to um, behavioral um, kind of or behaviors such as styling methods, um, one of the kind of most common recommendations was to go natural. And that means, you know, we just need to tell our patients, um, just stop, you know, using, stop using relaxers. Um, you can't do braids, don't do weaves, don't do tiny, uh, tight ponytails. Yeah, you know, just go natural um, and not even knowing kind of what that really means to a patient. Um, you would have, you know, some patients, you know, some people recommend topical steroids or shampoos, you know, in the past, maybe, you know, you know, some providers would do a couple of kind of log injections and they would say like, well, you're not doing any, you're not growing any hair and then maybe they would stop it after a few sessions or the patient would stop coming back to them after a couple of sessions. And then you would have some people, you know, some providers that would be a little bit more aggressive and do kind of oral tetracyclines or Plaquenil or, um, hair, or recommend um, hair transplantation. And I kind of had this um, kind of arrow on the side because I would say that the, probably the top of that ladder is much more common than um, anything on the bottom of that ladder. And then the general response of a lot of patients is that they get frustrated and they're non-compliant, right? So you tell them that they can't relax their hair or wear braids or weaves or any of these types of things. And the next time they, you, you know, they come to your clinic, they're still doing all the same things because they don't believe you. So what are these barriers to treatments? And so, you know, one of the questions I like to ask is why is our treatment of CCCA generally so different than treatment of other scarring alopecias? I am a lumper, so I tend to lump a lot of conditions together and lump the types of treatments that I do for those um, conditions, and then basically have like a base kind of treatment that I use for all the conditions, and then kind of have different special things that I do based on the condition. Um, but, you know, for CCCA, even though it's a scarring hair loss, you know, like, you know, like in pilaris um, or dissecting cellulitis or some of these, you know, these other scarring alopecias, we oftentimes would sometimes just tell patients to kind of adjust their behavior and not recommend any treatments. And so I, you know, part of that is actually due to the, the nomenclature of CCCA or the history of the nomenclature of CCCA. 
So when CCCA was described in um, 1968, it was actually called hot comb alopecia. And it's gone through a number of iterations of different names um, over the years. But really, you know, even though, you know, it was initially named um, hot comb alopecia, the name was changed actually because they found out that hot combs weren't the etiologic agent that was causing CCCA. I think that from that point, we, you know, have always kind of believed that it was purely behavior that was contributing to this type of hair loss in patients. Um, and then, you know, it's, you know, it's also hard to make recommendations for patients when you're not familiar with the hairstyling methods. So it's much easier to just say like, well, stop relaxing, stop braiding, stop weaving, stop doing all these things um, when you don't really have any idea of how to kind of make or recommend, recommend uh, modifications for patients. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. Um, and then, you know, from the patient side of things, why are patients, you know, kind of resistant to provider recommendations? Um, and then sometimes it's lack of confidence in their provider. Um, you know, sometimes patients just don't want to. They like what they've been doing with their hair and they don't want to change it. Um, you know, some hairstyling methods are expensive and also being natural isn't that particularly cheap. Um, and then it's also, you know, it's also kind of perception of social barriers. Sometimes natural hair isn't considered professional in, um, to some people or in some um, realms. Um, and it, you also have to think about, you know, you're telling someone who's been doing their hair a certain way for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years to do something completely different that they may not be familiar with. And really just kind of recognizing that should make us more kind of um, moderate in the kind of recommendations that we make for patients. So as I mentioned, you know, with the nomenclature of CCCA and, uh, you know, we have generally thought that um, for years, that the cause of CCCA was purely just behavior. So it's because you realize, you know, at first it was because we, um, you know, that people of color or black women used hot combs, then it was relaxers, then it was, you know, all the traction inducing, um, induced styling. But the interesting thing is, is that of the few studies that have been done on CCCA, CCCA um, there are no studies that um, have statistics uh, statistically significant, um, you know, proof that behavior plays a role in the development of CCCA. The only thing that actually has ever been found significant in most of these studies is family history. And so, you know, if, for those of us who deal with hair loss, in particular hair loss and skin of color patients, I think the general thought for, for many years for most of us is that there was probably some genetic predisposition to developing CCCA. And that in concert with potential, um, you know, kind of uh, different styling methods caused um, the hair loss. Um, so interestingly, about two years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, a group of researchers um, found that there was a variant of this gene, PADI3, in, C uh, in CCCA um, that was more common. Um, and so what they did is they took um, 16 patients and they did whole exome sequencing. And they identified this missense uh, mutation in PADI3 in five of their patients. And PADI3 is important because it actually is essential to hair shaft from, um, formation. Um, and they found that the mutations that they found in these five patients were um, resulted in reduced um, PADI3 expression, which um, basically supported their pathogenicity. Um, and so what they did is they went back and they actually uh, sequenced an addition, PADI3 an additional 42 patients and found another nine patients who had variants in this gene. Um, and they did an analysis that showed that the prevalence of PADI3 mutation was higher among patients with CCCA than a control cohort of um, women of Afri with African um, ancestry. Um, and so what that, you know, suggests is that, um, you know, this is kind of a schematic where you can see in the middle kind of pan um, panel that the idea is that perhaps if you have a mutation in um, PADI3, um, that it causes a hair shaft um, kind of um, 
uh, mutation and it causes the hair shaft to be weaker. And then environmental, environmental stressors such as hot combs or relaxers or tight ponytails or heat um, weaken the hair shaft and then cause the scarring process. Um, now, you know, PADI3 is only found in a small, um, the, or I should say this mutation is only found in a small um, percentage of the population. So PADI3 is not the full story, but at least it was the first paper that suggested that there was some other store, part of the story other than just behavior. Um, so I'm sure and hopeful, I'm sure and hopeful actually that um, more studies will come out um, elucidating other genes. Um, and so, you know, ever since its description in 1968, as I said, hairstyling methods have been implicated as, you know, a role of development of CCCA, um, but there is no evidence. But now we at least have evidence that there is some genetic um, predisposition for these patients. Um, and so we should include, you know, I think that it's important when we're talking to our patients that we include the fact that, like, yes, there is probably, a, you know, that there is a genetic component to your hair loss, and that in addition to your um, you know, your, you know, some um, of your hairstyling methods may play a role in the development and progression of this hair loss. Um, and so the, you know, as far as the lack of familiarity with styling practices, um, we're going to talk about that right now. And so I think it's important when, you know, we're talking, you know, as I said, if somebody told you that you had to change, completely change your hairstyling methods, um, you know, that you've been doing for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you would probably look at them um, like they were crazy. So that is, the that is the reason why patients look at us like, like we're crazy when we tell them to just stop doing everything. So I am, while I think it's great to kind of recommend kind of decreasing all of, you know, uh, tension and kind of traction inducing um, styles or potentially traumatic styling practices, if patients seem resistant to that idea, I think it is reasonable to recommend just kind of modifications. So we're going to talk about some of the different um, hairstyling methods that are available, and then we're also going to talk about um, kind of how to adapt and kind of adjust some of those. So for um, hot combing, um, so hot combing is basically what it sounds like. It's a hot comb. Um, so typically, you you can see on the panel on the right, there are um, combs um, that are made of metal. Um, and now they have electric um, kind of versions. Um, but in the past, they used to literally just take this comb that was a metal comb that was on a wooden handle and stick it on the stove and heat it up. Um, the electric versions now heat up to about 300 to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and what it does is that, you know, what patients usually do is they take a, you know, kind of section of their hair and they run the comb through it and the, comb, you know, the heat of the comb um, straightens their hair. It is a reversible form of straightening. Um, and although it's less popular today, some, there are some women who still use it um, as an alternative method to uh, chemical relaxing. And so if patients will want to continue to do hot combing, um, I usually recommend that they use um, lower temperatures. So, you know, as I said, some of these electric hot combs can go up to like uh, 500 degrees. So, you know, keeping it at 350, at most 400 is recommended, um, using it less frequently. So, you know, I don't recommend heat use every week. If they can kind of make, kind of stretch it to every two weeks, that's um, preferable. And then I also considered the use of a topical steroid at the time of styling. And you will hear me say that um, a number of times for the rest of the lecture, um, because I, you know, I do think it's important, um, you know, to, I think that it's helpful for patients who are still going to do some potential traumatic um, styling to use a topical steroid at the time of styling. Now, now, as far as what topical steroid to use, I use I usually leave a vehicle choice up to the patient um, and kind of give them the options for the different different uh, different vehicles that are available, whether it's ointment or cream or um, 
solution or gel. Um, for patients who are using heat methods to straighten their hair, I usually won't recommend, um, you know, kind of a gel or a solution just because, um, you know, the moisture will sometimes make the hair go back to being curly. Um, but again, I leave it up to the patient. Um, but I do think that it's helpful to use at the time of styling to kind of reduce any inflammation that may be induced by the styling. Um, flat irons, um, most, you know, at least, at least some of the women in the audience, I'm sure, have used a flat iron before. Um, but what this is, is basically instead of having a comb, you have two metal plates um, where you put the hair between the two plates to straighten the hair. It is also a reversible form of um, straightening. Um, similarly to the um, hot comb, I usually make recommendations of flat ironing no more than um, once every two weeks, at most every week, but preferably every two weeks. Um, and also, using a topical steroid at, this, at the time of styling. As I said, I usually avoid gels or uh, solutions um, unless the patient per, um, prefers that. Um, relaxers are another form of, um, or another method, I should say, of straightening um, hair. Um, it was developed in the 1960s, and there are two major chemical agents, sodium hydroxide and guanidine hydroxide, so it's lye and no lye reacts on relaxers. Now, the difference with this um, method of straightening of the hair, it is um, irreversible. Um, and so it, because it's irreversible, it actually keeps the kind of the hair completely straight, but the hair that grows out um, grows out curly. So it is typically repeated every six to eight, 12 weeks to straighten the new growth, which is what you call that hair that grows out in the natural and the original texture. Um, I put this picture here, um, you know, just to kind of uh, show that it's interesting. This is a patient who um, had his hair was uh, curly and actually does um, uses a flat iron. So I always say that even though this may look like a relaxer, you always want to, it's just, just to kind of uh, solidify the point that you always want to ask your patients whether they relax or not assume. Um, new growth, as I said, is like, you know, the kind of um, bottom shaft of the hair is straight, but the hair obviously grows out curly. So when people are doing um, their relaxers, what they do is they do these retouch or retouch, we usually call it touch-ups, but you can also call it a retouch, um, and where they just apply relaxer to the newly grown hair. Um, and so, and as I said, that's usually done every six to 12 weeks. And uh, you can see that panel on the right, or excuse me, on the left, um, where you can see the relaxer just on the base of the hair where the new growth or the new hair has grown. Um, in order, if you know, for patients who want to continue to relax their hair, I do recommend reducing the frequency of touch-ups to 12, every 10 to 12 weeks. Um, because if you're already using one method of um, you know, kind of straightening, I do recommend that they minimize heat use because again, that's your already, you know, you're already traumatizing or kind of damaging the hair to some extent when you straighten the hair. So then to add another kind of um, potential source of damage, you just want to minimize that. So this should minimize heat use to no more than once weekly. And then again, consider using a topical steroid at the time of styling. So I, I usually have patients, if they go to their hairdresser, to take their topical steroid with them um, to the hairdresser so the hairdresser can apply it before they um, style their hair. Um, so natural. So this is like kind of what we, you know, recommend for patients a lot, like, oh, just go natural. And so natural is this term that's kind of very nebulous. Um, and natural basically means that the patient has no relaxer, but it doesn't mean that the patient isn't using heat. It doesn't mean that, you know, the patient isn't, um, you know, wearing weaves or putting in braids or doing anything else. Natural literally just means that they have, that a patient has no relaxer. So I kind of put these pictures here because sometimes when we say natural, we have this, you know, kind of, you know, view in our head of somebody who has, um, an afro or, um, you know, has um, locks in their hair, but 
natural purely means that they're not that they're no longer using a relaxer. And again, as I said, I put this picture in to say that just because you are natural doesn't mean that your hair has to be curly. You can straighten it with heat. You can straighten it with a relaxer. Um, so for patients who are natural, meaning that they're not using a relaxer, but they're still using heat, um, again, same thing. Use heat no more than once weekly and using the topical steroids at the time of uh, treatment. Or that's the time of, I should say, styling. Um, so for braids, you know, I always think that it's, it's nice that when you see patients, they come in with different styling, if you can actually recognize that type of styling. So if you can recognize, is it braids? Is it, you know, is it, are they twists? Are they dreadlocks? Um, and so, um, this is one way to think about kind of how to recognize it. I say that, and I, you know, I, you know, sometimes I get the, you know, the question like, oh, well, how am I supposed to recognize what kind of styling it is? I'm like, well, we're, you know, we're, you know, we work in dermatology. We actually work to kind of, you know, pattern recognize. And so it's really just about recognizing the pattern. So for braids, uh, I always say that, the, you know, the pattern is this kind of crisscross pattern. And, you know, I think a good way to remember it is that it kind of looks like that bread, that challah bread. Um, and so if you see someone with braids um, or with a style, and you see that kind of pattern, then they have braids. Now, braids come in multiple different forms. They can hang down like the one in this picture. Um, they can be in rows. Um, this is, these are called cornrows. Um, and with cornrows specifically, there are braids that actually lie flat to the scalp. Um, but if you look closely, in particular, you can see it pretty well in that um, right panel or right picture, um, you can see the kind of like that uh, kind of braided pattern um, or that kind of um, challah bread pattern on the scalp. Now, interesting thing about cornrows is that cornrows are the base for a lot of different other types of styling. So they can be the base for um, uh, for weaves, they can be the um, base for crochet braids, they can be a style um, in and of themselves or in and of itself. Um, and so, um, you know, as far as my recommendations for kind of cornrows, um, you, you want to make sure that they're obviously not too tight. And as I said here, these are just some pictures of um, these kind of cornrows acting as the base for another style. So this is a picture of the cornrow acting as a base for sewing or gluing weaves. Um, this is actually a clip-in weave as well. Um, but usually what happens is that you kind of have this, um, you have hair that's a, a bit on a track we'll say. Um, and so you can kind of see that the hair is kind of uh, sewn together in this like weft. Um, and then that weft is actually attached to the scalp. So that weft can be attached in a with thread or it can be attached with glue. Now, um, for modifications for these types of styles, and I actually will have a, a, a little video of what, um, what a sew and weave looks like, but for modifications, whether it's the single braids, cornrows, uh, or kind of the cornrows that are used as a base for other types of styling, you wanna make sure that the braids are loose. And the reason why people get tight braids um, to begin with is that the, you know, the tighter your braids are, the longer that they're going to last. And braids are expensive. So, you know, this may be a couple hundred dollar styles. So if you're getting, you're paying a couple hundred dollars for your styling, you want the styling to last. And so, um, the modification that I will have that I get from my patients who want to continue doing braids is that they loosen the application of their braids, that they leave their braided styles on their hair for no longer than two months, um, that they opt for larger braids. So like smaller braids usually will have more tension than, um, than larger braids. Um, and that if they're going to add hair or extensions, um, that they should be only used for kind of short periods of time. Again, no longer than two months. Um, and if they are causing pain or irritation, they should be removed or you should ask your braider if you notice pain or irritation 
irritation while you're getting your hair braided, you should ask your braider to um, braid it more loosely. Um, I don't particularly like glue on weaves, but um, you know, if you're going to use it, you know, a weave, if you're going to have a weave, I, I would recommend doing sew-on weaves, but only if they're loosely sewn in. Um, and also taking breaks. Don't go from braided style to braided style or braided style to sew and weave to, you know, whatever. So I always tell patients or I recommend patients that, you know, that they take breaks between these types of styling. Um, and we also have crochet braids, which I call the great imitator. Now crochet braids, essentially it's the same base as we talked about, kind of the cornrow base, um, but they have these you can see kind of in their right kind of panel um you instead of sewing or sewing in the hair you will um kind of uh loop the hair in and also have a video of that as well um so we will see that shortly so here is our first video so um, I always think it's, uh, you know, we're all visual, so I always think it's nice to kind of see what these kind of styling looks like. So this is a woman who is doing her own hair. She is doing her own cornrows, and you can see, as I said, that those braids are kind of braided flat or kind of taut to the scalp. And she's doing this in preparation for doing a weave. And so now she's taking that track of hair that we talked about and she's literally sewing it to the scalp. Um, and you can see that the needle that she uses is very much like, um, we'll see in a little bit, it's very much like a suture needle. Um, and it's so directly, not to the scalp, but directly to the row, to the corn row, to the hair, um, to, keep it, um, to keep it secure. So as you can see, just by watching this video, um, the two areas of kind of tension and traction that um, patients can get when they use this type of hairstyling is the traction from the um, cornrows, you know, first of all, but also the traction from how tightly you sew the weave, you sew the weave to the row. Um, so again, being loose in both of those, um, um, both of those kind of um, styling methods, making sure you have looser cornrows and making sure you're not sewing the weave too tightly to the scalp, if a patient continues to want to do weaves, um, is recommended. And we'll go to the next one. Um, Again, as I said, topical steroids are, you know, kind of um, a mainstay for a patient. So I usually recommend using topical steroids um, also with crochet or weaves. Um, with crochet and weaves, because the hair kind of uh, covers the cornrows and part of the scalp, I usually choose a, a, a liquid um, or an oil. Um, I, you know, typically when I recommend topical steroids, I do class one topical steroids. We'll also talk about that in a little bit. Um, but um, class one topical steroids using a liquid form, whether it be a gel or a liquid, so that it can actually reach the scalp more easily through the, um, through the extensions. Um, I also recommend washing crochets or weaves um, at least every, every three to four weeks. And also, as I said, mentioned earlier, not keeping them in long, for any longer than about two months. And then we have a video here of crochet because, as I said, it's a little harder to describe. We're all visual people. We like to see what happens. So as I said, instead of having a weft of hair, you kind of have this um, uh, kind of loop of hair. And what you do, you still start with the same base of cornrows as she is, as she is showing right now. And then in a moment, what you see is she takes a crochet hook, just like you actually would use for like, you know, crocheting. You put that loop of hair through the um, hook, you close the hook, you pull it through the cornrow, so it kind of goes under the cornrow, and so you're left with this loop, and then you pull the ends of that hair through that loop, 
and you secure it. So it's almost like a little, instead of it being sewn to the row, the cornrows, it's kind of looped um, on the cornrow. And so that's repeated all over the scalp. Again, same thing. Areas of tension attraction for this type of style um, are the cornrows um, and also how tightly you loop um, that hair onto the area. Um, so other styling that you may see um, are twists. Um, twists, I would say, look like candy canes. Um, so that's how you can, uh, you can distinguish them from braids. Um, they often have this kind of twisted kind of appearance. Um, and you can, same thing, you can do this on your natural hair, meaning you can do your hair, do this on hair that's not relaxed. You can do this also with extensions. So I like this hairstyle, um, this style on um, kind of natural hair. It's very low tension, usually doesn't cause any breakage, um, and, and, and can be done fairly easier, easily for patients who choose to, um, who like that type of styling. Um, so I think it's a fine styling for patients who have CCCA uh, or the types of hair loss to um, do as long as they're doing kind of the loose style. Um, same, you know, issues if extensions are used, um, making sure that the extensions are not too small or that you're not doing small um, kind of sections and also that they're not too long. Um, locks are also known as dreadlocks, although I will say that you are, um, I used to have locks several years ago. Um, you are safer with um, calling them locks than dreadlocks as, as uh, dreadlocks is sometimes offensive to some people. Um, but locks are a form of styling basically where you have two, like kind of sections of hair that are allowed to mat and form these tubular structures. So you can kind of see on the um, bottom um, kind of right, um, the way that you can distinguish this from, a, uh, from braids, um, or um, twists is that it has no pattern at all. It kind of just looks like a, a tube. Um, now with um, dreadlocks, the main areas of um, concern for patients are that if they're too long, um, you can um, get the weight from them can um, get pretty heavy. Um, and I should explain how the, you know, kind of dreadlocks are done. Usually what happens is that you twist the hair, I'm doing a picture of that. You kind of twist the hair in a tubular kind of like you roll the hair um, and then you pin it and dry it. Um, and then in hair that's coilier, um, it over time will start to mat. Um, and so you can get very, very long hair, but also very, very heavy hair because you aren't losing your telogen hairs. Your telogen hairs remain kind of matted in the lock. Um, so for patients with locks, I recommend um, not retwisting, which is what you're seeing here, where you are retwisting the new hair that grows out. So retwisting, retwisting less frequently, which is done no more than every four to six weeks, keeping your locks shorter, making sure that you're using a potent topical steroid at the time of service and intermittently um, between service, and then also monitoring for um, signs of hair loss. So if a patient's needing to combine locks or they're losing locks, um, that might be a sign that they need to um, cut their locks shorter or if they're considering it, potentially cut, um, cutting their locks off altogether. And generally, to get rid of locks, you do have to cut them off um, altogether, although there are methods of actually combing them out. It just takes literally days. Um, avoiding updos or elaborate styling is also recommended um, because, um, as you can see in some of this, although it's great looking, um, there's a lot of tension that can be associated with some of the styling. And then for wigs, I usually recommend avoiding um, glued-on wigs or lace fronts, um, uh, but like other types of wigs are usually fine. Now, we talked about, you know, kind of some of this treatment, um, we, the kind of the modified hair care behaviors and just being um, realistic about your expectations and what you're recommending to patients and, and recommending modifications rather than just complete stoppage of um, uh, certain ha hairstyle methods. 
um, topical steroids, as I said, um, usually class one um, at the time of styling. For patients with CCCA, I usually have them use topical steroids indefinitely. Um, and so a class one topical steroid, whether it be clobetasol or halobetasol, um, in their vehicle of choice, and they should use it two to three times per week in the area of involvement and also periphery. Um, I am kind of soft about antifungal shampoos. I don't know that they're helpful, but if a patient has scaling, I will sometimes recommend antifungal shampoos. As we mentioned earlier, you want to make sure that the um, that you're recommending the shampooing um, in a frequency that is reasonable for the patient. Um, I usually recommend uh, at least every two to three weeks. Um, if the patient washes the hair more frequently than that, they can use it um, as often as they wash it. Um, Intralesion econolog injections usually want to do a, a concentration of 5 to 10 milligrams per cc at least every um, four to eight weeks for at least six sessions. I would say that the majority of my patients oftentimes need treatments longer than that. Um, so I usually will do the, you know, every four to eight weeks for six sessions and then after that do it every, again, maybe eight to 12 weeks indefinitely for as long as they have symptoms um, or for as long as they're complaining about hair loss and also just to maintain their um, hair um, kind of stability. Um, as, you know, to kind of gauge response to treatment for a lot of these treatments, you're gauging if you have a, if you're lucky and you have a patient with symptoms, you're looking for resolution of symptoms. It's often helpful also to take pictures to see whether or not there's any progression, but it usually takes several months for you to really realize that because it's a, it, for most patients, it's a slow process. Um, I also use um, oral tetracyclines. I use doxycycline more than minocycline. There's some thought that doxycycline has some anti-fibrotic properties, so that's usually why I kind of lean in that direction. So I usually start with 100 milligrams a day and then go up to twice daily. Um, GI side effects can be notable, so if um, you can also try using low-dose um, kind of doxycycline if desired. Hydroxychloroquine I have used. I don't find it to be as helpful, but it's something that I will use in patients who have more kind of progressive or aggressive disease. And then you can also do, um, you know, minoxidil. Um, and I should say that these treatments are more for the growth portion of things. Minoxidil, um, whether you do it topically or orally, you can also do camouflage um, with a, a topic, which is like kind of like um, fiber that you can apply to the scalp, um, wigs, as we talked about briefly um, a minute ago, and also hair transplantation. With hair transplantation, I usually recommend that they go to a, a, a physician who is um, used to treating patients of color because hair transplantation and um, patients of color is more difficult. Um, and I don't recommend it. I only recommend it when they have had stable disease for a year. So with minoxidil, we all know about minoxidil topically, also known as Rogaine. It comes in 2% and 5% foam solution, and it's supposed to work by increasing the antigen phase, decreasing the telogen phase, and increasing the diameter of the hair fiber. Um, and what does it do? In about 50% of patients, um, they will have stabilization of their hair loss, and then there's a small percentage that will have um, um, actual hair regrowth. Now, the with topical, I find that there are compliance issues because people don't want to apply a topical um, to their scalp daily. Um, you know, there is the case in that usually about four to six weeks after you starting of minoxidil, some patients have a little bit of telogen effluvium, which causes some patients to freak out. Um, Brand um, minoxidil is expensive and can be um, and may be kind of um, financially prohibitive for some patients. And then you can also get irritant or allergic contact dermatitis. And of course, you can get unwanted hair growth on the face with minoxidil, um, with topically. I also use minoxidil, uh, minoxidil orally. I actually find that it helps a little bit um, better. And so minoxidil was the topical form of minoxidil was derived from a blood pressure well from the blood pressure uh, blood pressure medication minoxidil. Um, so 
Uh, yeah, what I do is I take that medication, it, the lowest denomination that comes in is 2.5 milligram tablets, and I use it in very, very, very low doses um, in order to try to get the hair growth effects without getting the um, blood pressure effects. Um, it's super cheap and it, compliance is sometimes a little bit better because patients sometimes don't have an issue taking a pill um, as opposed to kind of using a topical medication daily. I use a lower dose in women initially, um, so I have them quarter the pill um, and take one quarter by mouth daily, whereas for men, I'll have them start with one half a pill. Um, if they are tolerating and fine and having no issues, they can increase up to doses of a full pill for women or five milligrams for men. The possible side effects are unwanted hair, and that's possible the reason why I start with lower doses for women. Um, they're also kind of this, you know, with higher doses of medication, you can get palpitations, um, uh, um, uh, hypernatremia, lower extremity edema, but majority of patients who use the medication do completely fine. And I always say that, you know, when I'm telling patients about using this medication, whether they're using it orally or topically, that it is considered a forever medication, meaning that they have to use it indefinitely in order to maintain any effects that they have. And, you know, for um, gauging response, if, you know, whether you're using the um, minoxidil in, by itself or in concert with other medication, with other treatments that we talked about, um, you're looking for decrease in symptoms like I talked about. So is there itching um, better? Is there um, tenderness better? And you also are looking for a slowed progression, which can be done by kind of taking pictures and gauging the change in pictures. And if you're lucky, which is how I, you know, kind of put it to patients, you might get some occasional hair regrowth. Um, and so I, I'll end this kind of um, talk by, at, you know, kind of putting in this picture of a patient who um, had CCCA. This was her picture in December of actually 2013, so it's been a while since I've been treating her. Um, and then um, after treatment, she actually did treatments with intralesional uh, catalog injections. Um, she also did oral minoxidil and topical steroids. This is what she looked like a, a year and a half later. And so I, you know, I put this picture in to say that, you know, although traditionally, you know, the, the and she, I, she actually, I should clarify and say she has CCCA and intragenetic alopecia, but, you know, we always um, in the past had uh, considered not treating these patients. But, you know, I think that, you know, we owe it to our patients to really kind of um, give them the full gamut of uh, treatments that are available and seeing kind of how they respond. Um, and that is the end of my talk. Um, are there any questions?